We got a little something special for you today, but before we launch into that, I just want to let you know that we are giving away Debbie Wiles, uh, the corporate blogging book. It's a first edition signed copy. Get yours today. Go to bleedingink.fm. That's bleedingink.fm to enter. Well, this poem is called To Bleed, and it was done by special request uh, in honor of the name of this podcast. To Bleed. To bleed is to live, not just well, but with gusto, with guts, and with what is within you literally pouring out. We are not here to cling to the edges, to be along for the ride, no. We are here to draw blood, to become who we are so fully that it pours from our pores, that it gushes from our veins, that it pumps forth from our barbaric yop heartbeats, crying out our powerful songs with every last breath. There is, there is nothing to writing. All you do is sit down at a typewriter and bleed and bleed and bleed. What's this? Bleeding Ink, a podcast for indie authors with J.S. Leonard. Welcome to the third episode of Bleeding Ink. That was Scott James doing his typewriter poetry. More on that later. So... I'm often at a loss for whether I want to seek an agent and publish via traditional channels or publish independently or or find some happy hybrid blend of which I haven't seen any compelling success stories. And having only self-published, I yearn to understand the traditional model so that I, one, know what I'm missing and two, can replicate it as best I can. Debbie Quile has trod both roads and favors whistling to her own tune. You see, She's published with Penguin. Well, that yielded an education in managing a relationship with a big five, it did little else. She sold roughly 10,000 copies of her corporate blogging book, a not so insignificant number by any means, but to Penguin, it was tater tots opposed to owning the potato farm. And if you were to ask her today if she could redo it, team with Penguin over self-publishing through her own company, Voxy Media, you'd receive a different response. It's forged from dense steel that can only be crafted through experience. In this episode of Bleeding Ink, Debbie Weil and I delve into this very topic. We also branch into audience building and the inner workings of book editing. It's a great conversation. You'll be delighted with her positive energy. She's a smart cat. After all, she did attend Harvard for journalism, but she's also humble. She doesn't conflate her success and intelligence with superiority. Rather, she uses her life experience to enrich those around her. And I admire Debbie's kind of people. Enjoy. Today, I've got a really cool guest. Her name's Debbie Weil. She uh, runs and manages a a company called Voxy Media. She and I met through a really cool program. Um, uh, It's instant bestseller. It's a Tim Grawl program. Really cool um, book coach and book building type thing. And um, I want to welcome you, Debbie, and, and uh, just see how you're doing. How you doing, Debbie? I'm doing great. This this is great to do this. This should be really fun. Yeah, thank you so much for being on the show. So, Debbie, for those who don't know you, tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, let me look at my notes. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I'm serious. I, I go so far back, I have to. Um, I had to make a couple bullet points here. Um, 
And I was trying to think how to do this really succinctly for you and your and your listeners. Um, I've been on the web for over 20 years and online since I'd say 1992. Mm-hmm. That's a really long time. Yeah. Uh, I launched, launched my first website in 1995. Uh, previously, I was a newspaper journalist. Um, and aside from a detour later in the 90s to get an MBA, I've been focused the whole time on online. Uh, helping people, particularly corporate types, become better communicators and basically helping them cut out all that corporate uh, babble, although you said I'm allowed to use words like bullshit, so cutting out all the corporate bullshit. Uh, And I started with a focus on email marketing, and I had a newsletter that I ran for years. I, at one point, had 20,000 subscribers. And around that time, um, yeah, I mean, this was early, early days, like 2003, actually, was Mm. when that was sort of getting going and an editor um, that worked with Seth Godin actually stumbled on something I had done and sent me an email and said, have you ever thought about writing a book? Mm. First of all, thank God I saw her. (laughs) You know how it is with missing emails and wrote back and said, wow, I mean, yes. And one thing to led to another. So I uh, wrote and published the corporate blogging book, Mm. We can talk about the title later, not sure. the greatest title, the corporate blogging book with uh, Penguin Portfolio in 2006. So that makes it almost a relic. It makes it a classic, I guess, of one of the very first books about business blogging. That's almost 10 years ago. And then after that, I did some really cool stuff based on the book. I've spoken all over the world, including in Dubai and China. And um, then a few more years went by and I realized I was sick to death of talking about social media. Mm-hmm. And I became very interested in this new phenomenon that you and I are discovering through Tim of author entrepreneurs, uh, which is a much more fun way of talking about self-publishing. Yes, and now I like that. I, yeah, I mean, and so now I do, um, so I started Voxy Media and I shifted focus to uh, writing books, basically books and eBooks. And now I do workshops, writing workshops on the coast of Maine, where I now live, interestingly, after 30 years in Washington, D.C., but I do the workshops on in Maine and in New York, and I publish a small number of authors, hmm. uh, nonfiction, who are interested in um, very high quality editing and high quality design. So that that's that's plenty. Yeah, that's that's wow. So so you've been writing for how many years now? Then quite a few. You started in journalism. <laughs> Uh, well, now this is going to date me, um, but we went out. What the heck? So. Uh, I graduated from college in the seventies, so mm-hmm. I can't I can't do the math. How many years? <laughs> well, I just had my all right. I just I went to Harvard and I just had my fortieth college reunion. It was really really fun. So I've been writing for, I mean, how many years is that? Forty Eno- years. Enough to make you good. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. I mean, although we can talk about that too. I mean, every day is a new day. I believe That's in, true. I believe in beginner's mind when it comes to writing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the corporate blogging book, uh, 2006, have you written any other books since then or, or do you have anything in the queue? I have not published another book, certainly not officially with a traditional publisher. And I've been working uh, for a while now on a short book mm. that I'm calling Done, mm. as in D-O-N-E, Done, uh, How to Start and Finish Writing a Short Book. And, and you can laugh if you want because that's sort of a tautology or a, whatever sure. the word is. And uh, the answer is no. And I, and, but I think I'm really more, much more interested in self-publishing than in going back to a traditional publisher. Um, so that's 
and I also spend a lot of time working as an editor, working with other writers. So I kind of wear two hats as an editor and a writer. Yeah. And that, that's, that, I, I, let's just say I use that as one of my excuses for not having published other books yeah. yet, but more to come. So you're pretty much like a triple threat. I mean, you're an author, you're a book coach, you're a publisher. Like, how, how did you just fall into these roles? Is this just something you naturally, <laughs> organically grew into? Like, how did this happen? And, you know, that's a great question. Um, well, uh, remember, I go way, way back. I mean, I worked as an editor in journalism and for newspapers. So it's a very, that's a very natural role. And I have you know, deep experience in it. And then as a writer, and then the, this, the self-publishing revolution means, as you know, that basically anyone can be a publisher, mm-hmm. uh, but to be a quality publisher of books, um, y- there really needs to be some curating. And so mm-hmm. that's, um, that's what I do. Okay. So self-publishing over Penguin, like did your experience with Penguin sort of direct you towards self-publishing or, is was there something else in self-publishing that did, made you gravitate towards it? Well, first of all, it just was becoming really, really. Uh, it was on everyone's radar suddenly about three or four years ago, mm-hmm. uh, when some of these fiction, you know, vampire thriller romance writers um, realized that they could. Those who will e- go unnamed. <laughs> exactly, they could put up an ebook, and suddenly they had a million buyers, and they didn't need a New York publisher. So that's when it sort of came to a lot of people's consciousness. But I'm not interested in that kind of. I'm not interested in that genre. And I realized, well, wait a minute. You know, all these people who are trying to write these business books and short nonfiction books and even memoir could use the same tools. So, and I was, but I was very inspired specifically by Seth Godin, um, who everyone knows is the world's. Um, uh, longest running and, and biggest audience blogger. I think he's got mm-hmm. a million readers or maybe it's yeah. two million readers. Uh, he did a publishing project for about a year with Amazon that was called the Domino Project. And he published, I think, 12 books and they were all very short. And something just just absolutely hit me square between the eyes about that. I thought, whoa, wait a minute. Short. Yeah. Short, so- high quality books. Short, like short, like 100 pages. Okay, 100 That's pages. That's what people can do. Um, with help from an independent publisher like Voxy Media or, or on their own. And it's, it's sort of like it's the next thing after blogging. First, we all figured out how to put up a blog and blog and publish. And now we all can figure out how to put up a, an ebook on Amazon. Mm-hmm. By so Dunn falls into this category? Oh, sure. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. that'll be... Um, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll publish that through Voxy Media. But what I, what I, now that I've been publishing, uh, you know, a handful of other authors, I've realized interestingly that the value of a soft cover book, mm. in addition to the ebook, is tremendous. People love something they can hold in their hands. Yes. So um, while an ebook can be 20, 30, 40 pages, nobody knows how long it is when they see it on Kindle. You do need 70, 80, 90 pages of a typed manuscript in order to make a book long enough to have it have a little bit of heft right. substance, um, even as a, a soft cover, again, all of which can be, you can do yourself through create space mm-hmm. or lightning source. So I'm, I'm hoping to, I, I want to make it long enough and substantive enough that I can have it in soft cover. People just, they just, it's sort of, it's a little bit, maybe a reaction against Kindle eBooks, but mm-hmm. you 
Well, what do you think? I don't know, man. There's there's definitely the, the tactile feel of a book has a, an allure to it that, that I think it's what makes us human to enjoy that sort of thing, using our fingers to digest or consume information. It's, it's interesting, too, that you say that because there's a new trend, especially with the younger generation, the ones who are who grew up sort of more digital than not, um, that they're starting to see like this idea of tactile as like a novelty, and they're actually, <laughs> they're being like marketed to in that way, like go to a, an adult summer camp, you know, because you never got to experience playing dodgeball and all these they were like going on a hike and all these things, and you know, it's 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 really interesting, and I, I always think there's going to be a part. You know, of us that 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 appreciates, um, you know, having that weight in your hands. I don't know what it is. There's definitely there's something within us that I think loves it. Um, I you know I go back and forth between Kindle and and um, and uh, books, and I have no bias towards either. I mean, I I enjoy both. Um, uh, I mean, how do you feel? Do you do you, do you enjoy Kindle over uh, having a regular book or not? Well, I definitely, first of all, I've owned every single version of the Kindle, which is mm-hmm. ridiculous when yeah. I think of how much money I've spent on that. Now I have the latest one, which is has the white screen and it's smaller and lighter. That's the one I have. Um, <laughs> and I have hundreds of books on it. But I find that if it's a book I want to hold in my hand from a kind of design artisanal perspective and maybe even particularly a hardcover, I will buy it in hardcover. And I think it could, you talked earlier with me about um, your background as a designer. And there's mm-hmm. something about the design arts yeah. of a book that you can't really get through Kindle. I mean, you can get a taste for it, but if you want to feel it, you got you got to, if you really want to get that, you got to hold the book, I think. It's true. Funny that you say that. I'm actually exploring a, a sort of a new concept. Um, I'm writing a novella, and I'm, it's going to be like an enhanced novella, where I, I'm actually playing with the idea of producing a very interactive. It's not interactive like choose your own adventure novel, but the novel itself integrates art into the experience of reading it. And um, I'm going to try and play with that threshold because I, I I totally get it. <laughs> I totally get the design, the craft of the book itself. Um, I think it enhances and lends itself to the experience. And I'm going to see if I can translate that somehow <laughs> into uh, into the whole e-reading experience. But um, anyways, so it sounds like you've had some challenges. I mean, uh, the corporate blogging book was probably, it sounds like you, you were approached by a publisher and it took three years for that to come out. I mean... No, no, not three years. Uh, And interestingly, actually, it was, they wanted it so quickly that that was particularly painful. And I like Mm. to compare it to um, being pregnant and giving birth, which Mm -hmm. I I actually have done three times. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now now they're all grown up and now I have some grandbabies. But um, they approached me. I had a signed contract in give or take, say, July. They want. They gave me like five months to write the book, and of oh, course, wow. I was so naive and so wanting to please that I said, "Well, okay." It nearly killed me because I, I remember I turned the manuscript in, the final manuscript in, basically by December thirtieth. And, and when you have a contract with a the publisher, the, there is a gun to your head. I mean, they mm-hmm. basically say at some point, if you don't turn it in by this date, forget it. You know, we're not going to promise to publish it, and mm-hmm. we're not going to give you your whole advance. It was way too quick because when you write something that's 200 pages long, you need time for it to marinate and to go back over earlier chapters. So uh, I think the book actually is really quite good. I think it's quite well written. I still dip into it and look at it, but I sometimes just get this queasy, nauseous feeling because I know Mm. if I'd had more time, I would have done some things differently. And then it came out um, 
the following August. So the whole process really took just about a year, which is actually wow. very fast. That's very fast. Yeah. In the world of traditional publishing. But they were very, um, they thought corporate blogging was going to kind of have its day and then it would, <laughs> it would recede. And as you and I know, it's still almost, it's, you know, nine, almost 10 years later and it's still a kind of a new thing for yeah. a big company to have a good blog. Mm-hmm. Would you say that was the, the most difficult challenge of working with Penguin? Was that particular deadline, that, that gun being held to your head, or were there other challenges? That is a good question. I, the, I, the, the two biggest challenges were, one, writing the book, which mm-hmm. even though I've been a journalist for, for decades and have written you know thousands and thousands of words, it just was the most painful thing I'd ever done to write and kind of like commit to what you were writing. And also, because I'd spent so much time at that point you know, well over 10 years writing online, I was used to a different kind of writing where you could suggest something and then you could link out to something else that would expand on it. Sure. Uh, you know, it's, it's actually like a way of thinking and writing. And of course I couldn't do that in the book. I had all had to be right there. It just was very, it was just painful because I'm a perfectionist and I wanted it to be perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the second, so that was, I mean, that wasn't really particular to, to, to portfolio, depending sure. on portfolio. The second thing that was very, very frustrating was the marketing, or maybe I should say the non-marketing mm. of the book. They basically, and I, I was so naive, I didn't know this, but basically mm. they did nothing. Mm. And I tried to do a little bit on my own, but I was clueless, just clueless. And I, I probably did sell close to 10,000 copies, which is not too bad, mm-hmm. Um but the book's actually, uh, the print edition's no longer in, in print. So mm-hmm. I have valuable copies and <laughs> maybe we'll do a giveaway with one mm-hmm. of them. But, oh, absolutely. Uh, so it was the, so it all became very clear that, and now we all know this, that traditional co- publishers really don't market the book for you. They do edit copy edit it and they design the cover and they produce it and, um, they get it on Amazon and in some of the bookstores. But uh, in terms of selling the copies, making the copies move, unless you're a really important author, they don't do anything for you. Hmm. So, you know, revelation, hello, you know, really, yeah. well, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, why am I, you couldn't, I could, I could, if I could do this just as well on my own, why don't I just do it on my own? Hmm. Were there any positives to working with Penguin? Well, there's the, you know, just the um, sort of, it's a prestigious imprint kind of mm-hmm. thing. I guess it's the same kind of positive as me being able to say, well, yeah, I went to Harvard. Um, you know, was I happy my whole time at Harvard? No. Am I glad I went to Harvard? Yes. It's fun to go to the reunions. Am I glad that my traditionally published book was published by Seth Godin's publisher? Yes. But, you know, that's kind of silly because yeah. we're in a whole different era where you don't need the New York Times to get the news. Right. You know, and we don't really need portfolio um to read a good book. Yeah. I was speaking with David Moldauer about this very topic and, and, you know, I was like, so what, I mean, why even go traditional anymore? And he's, he's, he's very pro traditional publishing. Um, and one of the things he said is that imprints now act as gateways for readers. They're, they're filters, right? They're, they're the gatekeepers to the content. And if you can get you know, behind one of those, then you're kind of already validated for that audience. I mean, would you say that's true? Absolutely. I mean, okay. absolutely. That's exactly what the imprint does. It's, it's a, uh, you know, it's a stamp of quality of approval of having been curated, uh, very much echoing the brand of whatever the publisher is and portfolio does some really cool business books. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but again, there's so many of us out there who already have, who know how to curate Mm -hmm. that you don't actually need to have a big name publisher and put- curate your your book. Now, I agree that I would say you know probably seventy five, if not ninety percent of the books being published on self published on Kindle are complete crap. Mm-hmm. But there's plenty of really good books out there, and that's a very very exciting thing. And that's where the whole notion of author entrepreneurs comes into play. So, do you think then the imprint helps break through that noise? Because I mean, there's a lot of noise. I mean, if eighty percent of the books out there are crap, then I mean, there's a lot for readers to wade through. Um, maybe better. How does does do how does the modern like independently published author, you know, sort of replicate that piece, that gatekeeper piece? How do they break through the noise and become some signal? Well, I think there's two ways. One is to write a really, really good book, whether it's mm-hmm. nonfiction or fiction. So I'm a huge believer in that. It's actually about quality, which which would include not just the writing itself, but having it, you know, beautifully edited. So that's one piece. And then the second is to uh, take advantage of every possible trick in the book for uh, marketing and promoting it yourself, you know, via the, the 100 people you know, who then tell 100 more people, 100 more people, you know, you market via basically content. I mean, you sort of sell without selling. Uh, so... That's how. I mean, there's there's a little bit of luck involved, and then there's also a third thing, which is, well, do you really need to sell mm. fifty thousand copies to say your book was a success? I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's it's almost like recalibrating. Well, so what's what's your uh, equation for success? Because yeah. the authors I work with want a really good book that they can use in a sense as a three D business card. Sure. But they have no expectation of it being a bestseller. So well, that, okay. I guess, yeah. you know, sort of challenging that. I mean, does, it, does every book need to be a bestseller? I, what if, yeah. I totally agree with you. I think if the book is going to support your business in some way and help you build better clients and, and things like that, then and, you know, the nonfiction route of, of having it not sell as much, but it, it making you an authority in your field is, um, I think, extremely valuable. But what about like fiction authors? How, I mean, do you have any idea how they can help eclipse that, that, that struggle? Well, that's interesting. You know, I'm really not, I mean, obviously I love fiction myself. Mm-hmm. I mean, my favorite thing to read is what I call literary fiction. Sure. Um, that's a very interesting question. You know, I, and I hadn't even really thought about that recently, but I think there might be some truth in that, that if it's, if you want to really cut through the noise and be noticed as a fiction writer, it really helps to have a prestigious imprint. Yeah. Behind you. And of course, they usually also give you the marketing push. But, um, you know, it's just, it's all, there, there's so many things that challenge, you know, what, you know, do we have to do everything in the traditional way? I mean, sure. you, can you only be well educated if you've gone to college or if you've gone to a big name college or a, a name of a college that people recognize? I mean, it's, it's all the same sort of big conversation about, well, what, you know, what, what, what makes things more valuable? Mm-hmm. Uh, so the answer is, I'm not a fiction writer, but uh, but on the other hand, I think it's I think people get caught up in interesting, particularly if they haven't finished writing and getting so worried about how it's going to get published sure. that they don't put more of the focus on writing something fantastic and then yeah. figuring out how to get a literary agent and how to get it published. That's a, that's kind of a bias I have because I'm very interested in the craft of, of writing. Yes, um, and I regard the publishing and promoting as as a little bit of a separate thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So as for nonfiction authors, how does, how does Voxy step in and, and really help, you know, an author come, come out and, and break through the mold? Uh, by, uh, helping them publish a really terrific book. It's, you, it's, it's, it's not about the promoting. It's more about the, the quality of the, mm-hmm. the editing and the, and the design of the book. Can, um, you de- can you describe those steps? Like when an author wants to do that, how they would engage with you and, and the first, like the, where they would start and how it, it would end? Uh, well, it can happen in two different ways. I mean, I've had a couple of authors come to me with a completed manuscript and they basically wanted to have it, um, lightly copy edited, which is all it needed. And then they wanted it beautifully designed and, published and put up on Amazon as both a hardcover and a, in this case, it was a hardcover and an ebook. So that's what I did. This was a Washington author who had published traditionally before and just wanted to publish another book and didn't want to bother with the publisher. Sure. So, so that's, so one avenue is, is if a, an author comes to me with a completed manuscript and the other avenue is, is, is where they literally come with the book in their head. It's a book and it's the ideas in their mm. head. So we have to go from brain to book. Yeah. And that means, um, depending on how they write and how fast they write, it means book coaching, you know, private book coaching, helping them. I don't write it for them, but I do everything I can to get them to write it. Finding, then finding them an editor and a copy editor and going through the steps. And it really is just a series of steps mm-hmm. that are a bit iterative because they kind of um, overlap one another. But um, to get it to a point where it's, almost perfect and it's um designed it's like designed like in a pdf and at that point you can upload it to uh amazon as a kindle book or create space for example which does the soft covers for amazon mm-hmm. and you need a great cover and you need great copy on your amazon page and so we help uh that's what I help an author do. To be honest, I don't specialize in the marketing and promoting because mm-hmm. I just you just you can't do everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something I'm, uh, trying to figure out if there's a, you know, just like a perfect partner that I could send people to. Mm-hmm. Cause it really, it's kind of two separate things. There's the, the writing of the book and the packaging. So it's mm-hmm. beautiful and very high quality and mm-hmm. very professional. And then there's the promoting, which of course really should start before you finish the book. Sure. So, and, and that's, that's how it works. But some people, um, it takes them so long to write that I mean, I've only been at this for a couple of years. They haven't finished writing, so we're still <laughs> we're still doing that. And I totally understand. I mean, here I have been working on a short book for for two years. Uh, you know, life life happens. People are very busy. The people I w- tend to work with are are very busy professionals, and they're not just writers. So it's a journey of helping them go over the mountain from having a book idea that they're passionate about, that's, that's been on their bucket list to write this book, and helping them get it written and then get it. Uh, put into book form and published. Mm-hmm. And that takes, uh, honestly, it depends on the person. You could do something crappy probably in six or eight weeks, but to do something that you is just what you want to promote your business or because it's been on your bucket list can take uh, mm-hmm. a year or more. And that's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. So here's, here's some tautology for you. When do you think done will be done done? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Leonard, no, you, you're not supposed to be asking me that. Uh, well, uh, one of the things I do believe in is deadlines and accountability. So um, I also have a book coach because that's very yeah. helpful. Uh, I have written thousands of words. So the, this should a draft of this should be done early this fall. That's great. And then, it, then it's a matter of, of just 
getting it whipped into shape with an editor. And we can talk more about editors if you want, because um, I do, I do want to talk about that. I actually want to talk about your target word count. Like where do you think that sweet spot is for a short book? Oh, it's a great question. I, I don't really have one. I mean, if you just, what's nice about having a target word count is you can break it down and chunk it down and chunk it down so you can feel that it's a doable project. Mm -hmm. So let's see if I can do the math quickly. Generally, um, once the the back of the hand number is 250 words a page, Mm -hmm. so 100 words, that's, Am I doing this right? 25,000? Yep, 25,000. So anything under 25,000, and it's interesting if you say you say you decide you want to write a book, it's just going to be an ebook, it's going to be 50 pages. Sure. So that's 12,500. And you decide there's going to be 10 chapters. So that's 1,000, that's 1,250 words, 1,250 words a chapter. You can see. This is why I believe in the in the word count thing. If you chunk it down to where it's doable, it's basically like, hey, write 10 blog posts that are really, really good. Yep. Then write, figure out what order to put them in later. Yeah. Then write introduction. Uh, then have maybe a resources section at the end. Hey, you've got a book. Mm. So that's kind of how I think about it. And I find it... I, People find that very comforting. Have you heard of uh, a gal named Amy Hoy? <laughs> uh, I have she, not. Although the name is familiar, but I have she, not. She runs a program called Thirty by Five Hundred, and um, it's more tech oriented. But I mean, it, the, the principles still apply. But that's she's all about, and she this is her, this is her coined term is stacking the bricks. And what that means is that you write these sticky pieces of content and she teaches you sort of how to structure all that. But you write these sticky pieces of content and you get to a point where 10 of them work out really well and you stick them together and boom, there's your product. <laughs> and it's, just, it's, very, it's very similar. And I know for a fact, David, that it works. It works phenomenally well. So I think that's a, a great approach. Well, I'll definitely check her out, Leonard. That's, that's um, the reason it works is because you can fool yourself mm-hmm. all the time. Yep. Uh, one of my favorite books about writing is Anne Lamott's <clears throat> Bird by Bird, which is was literally my sanity when I was writing the corporate blogging book. Mm-hmm. Um, it was one of the first sort of books on the craft of writing that I really read. And she talks about something called the two-inch hole, like the two-inch window. Mm. And she said, you cannot sit down at your computer and quote-unquote write a 200-page book. You can't do that. You can only write the couple of pages you're going to write or even the page sure. you're going to write yeah. during that session. And if you can trick yourself into only focusing on that so you're not in a total panic, you just keep writing two-inch windows by two-inch windows, which is exactly the same thing as stacking the bricks. Is You're not writing a book. Hey, you're not writing right. a book. You're writing a short essay. By the way, I have one of my favorite um, book coaching clients that I've been working with for a while. She decided that the term book was so... Uh, terrifying that we'd stopped calling it a book. She, we called it a writing project. And she was writing exactly that, like 12 articles that kind of LinkedIn type articles that are terrific. Mm-hmm. And it's her writing project because she didn't want to call it a book because that was just too overwhelming and she's too busy with the rest of her life and her business. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Yeah. No, I, think that's, I think that's great. I mean, that's kind of goes back to what... Uh, Sun Tzu's, not Sun Tzu, who was the guy that said, you know, every big journey starts with a single step and then you just take steps until you get there. <laughs> you focus on, you know, that present moment. Um, and uh, as long as you're doing that, then I, I think I think that our society really makes us goal-oriented and we see the big picture and we're always projecting 
uh, into the future, right? So when we're working on something, we're not working, we're not, we're not staying present in what we're working on. We're thinking about the big picture and we're trying to fit what we feel like we're not working because the big picture hasn't been completed. And I think when you take a step back and become present in like the now and the present moment, and all you're responsible for is that little teeny bit of whatever it is you're trying to do, then you're doing everything correctly. That's where you should be. And as long as you do that every day, over and over again, you stay in that state, that sort of Zen place, um, you know, you're going to reach that goal and you're going to reach it, I think, happily. Um, so I totally agree with you. And that's, that's very interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm happy you shared that um, little, little anecdote from, from Anne Lamott's Bird by Bird. Well, I mean, and I completely agree with you, but I'm not sure you're always happy when you're in that daily you know, practice because you may think this is crap, this is crap, this is crap. But to take the, but all the best writers, Hemingway included, you know, you take the preciousness out of it. It's like you yeah. get up, you put your butt in the seat, pardon my language, and you sit there for 20 minutes or an hour and you write. And by the way, you can do what's called free writing, which I'm a huge believer in, which really is kind of staying in the moment and just writing whatever comes out of your head. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's been absolutely proven if you do that, you kind of get the crap out of your head, the, you know, the whining, the, uh, you know, the feeling sort of shitty about what you're writing. Mm -hmm. And then you, you start writing what you really want to write. Mm -hmm. So I, but I love the mindfulness and being in the moment because, um, but it, the moment can feel kind of crappy. <laughs> yeah. I, I I agree with that. I guess what I what I'm saying is that when you're when you stay present, it doesn't matter what it feels like as long as you're there and you're committed to it. Um, and then you know you just let it happen. But but anyways, I've been I've been reading this book called The Practicing Mind, and and uh, it's it's all about that. And he explains it much better than I. <laughs> so um, how do you like? So you said you had an audience of twenty thousand people back in what two thousand three? Yeah. Yeah. So so how do you go about building an audience? Well, I'm embarrassed to tell you that there, I don't have all those people on my email list anymore. Mm -hmm. um, one reason is because I made a lot of friends in the email marketing industry, and I had this fantastic email service provider that was very high-end, and they let me use it for free. And then mm. when they wouldn't let me use it for free anymore, I basically had to cull through my names. So I couldn't take <laughs> them all with me. So how do you build an audience? Um, by being... Uh, and this is what Tim Grawl says, and I love it, by being relentlessly, relentlessly useful... Mm -hmm. by being, you know, persistent and by publishing consistently, whether it's uh, once a week or once a month. But I mean, and you do that over a period of months and years and you publish stuff that's useful, interesting, um, respectful of your audience. And by God, you will grow an audience, but it takes time as, you know, even someone as wonderful as Jeff Goins will tell you, the blogger and author, you know, you start, everyone starts with zero readers and you yep. just, you just, it takes time. So there's this, I always see feel there's this dichotomy between this instant gratification culture that we all live mm -hmm. in and swim in. And the fact that to do a lot of these things with these tools that are instantly usable and that we can learn how to use so quickly, it still takes time, you know, mm -hmm. whether it's hitting a button and publishing a blog, you have to do it for a couple of years before people even notice. That's my, that's my bias. Um, and, and you just have to keep going and knowing that you're just, you've had to force yourself knowing that not every single thing you publish will be wonderful, but it's more important that you keep publishing. Mm -hmm. Um, and it just over time it get your audience 
is, becomes attracted to you and sticks mm-hmm. with you. Yep. Yeah. Consistency is definitely, definitely key. Um, you know, it's about stacking those bricks and building a wall that, you know, when someone gets stuck on one of your bricks and suddenly they realize there's a whole wall in front of them of really good stuff <laughs> and they stick with you. Yeah. It's like a web, sort of a spider, spider web. Um, so you're, you know, you're talking about writing these little bits and pieces and eventually, you know, aggregating them into a much larger work. You know, w- w- tell me about your creative process. Like, how do you go about writing? Actually, very much like what we've just been discussing. I'm a kind of an ADD person. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea of sitting down and writing, writing something that is logically correct and completely coherent in a large piece is really daunting to me. Mm-hmm. But hopping around and writing shorter riffs, if you will, mm-hmm. um, feels very doable. So that's when I want to sort of psych myself out into thinking I'm not really writing a book. I'm just writing a series of riffs. That's kind of how I'm, that's how I'm approaching um, done. Because I've actually probably written this book. It's, you know, it's on my hard drive in 20 different places. Yeah. Uh, so, so how do you keep all that together? Do you use any tools? Ooh. Yeah. Uh, well, I've, I've been mastering, first of all, I have a lot of folders and, you know, do things by year and by topic. I've been mastering Scrivener. Yep. And I uh, finally think I'm really getting into it. So I, I've used Scrivener for a couple of years. Um, and in this latest uh, incarnation of working on, on Done, I've figured some things out that I hadn't done before. And it, it's, it's, it, there's too many details to go into. But if you really work at figuring out how to get the most out of Scrivener, it is an amazing tool for like putting all your research in places where you can then pu- pull it out and use it in a little, no, I won't even use the word chapter, but in a little mm-hmm. bit, a little piece that you're writing. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so right now my, my tool of choice is Scrivener, but I have to say, honestly, I've been using it for a couple of years and I'm still learning. Yeah. Scrivener is my jam. I love Scrivener so very much. <laughs> I've been using it for, oh man, I'm not even sure how long now. God, it's gotta be at least five, seven, eight, I don't know, a long time. Oh, wow. And, um, it was the first tool that I'd run across where it, it, it completely just went in line with how I approach, um, just sort of creating. And that's, it's similar to you. I'm, I'm all over the place and, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not quite an outliner. I'm not quite a by the seat of my pants sort of writer. I'm a little bit of in between and, you know, Scriver, excuse me, Scrivener has, uh, the ability to facilitate any sort of style. And, um, but yeah, I need to have, I mean, just having a research folder in your writing software that allows you to break apart, you know, the various things that you're working on and uh, just shoving them to little bit places so that you can refer to them later or not even refer to them all, just to know that you have them in the back of your mind <laughs> or, or at least accessible um, is, is so freaking helpful. Is there, is there anything Scrivener could do better that, you, that would help you more, do you think? That's an interesting question. Um... It's a little, uh, it's, it is hard to learn. I mean, I'm finding the other piece that in addition to what you mentioned that I like is that it's actually quite visual mm-hmm. um, and that helps me. I mean, it's almost tactile, the word we were yeah. using before. What else could they do better? I mean, I don't know. I suppose just make it a little bit less, it's just complicated. It has a lot of bells and whistles. I actually did buy an online course. It's called Learn ah. Scrivener, I think, and had a whole bunch of little videos um, and sat and watched them and it had lots of tips and tricks and stuff. So 
So since you write in this um, sort of piecemeal sort of way and, and you have these little chunks of content, like does that change how editing works? Like how, how do you approach editing with that type of style? Well, hopefully, although I am an editor, yeah. I, I, I need my own editor. It doesn't, it really shouldn't matter because at some point, if it's going to be a book until we completely change, you know, what a book is, it's going to have to start on page one and go to page 99. Uh, so you put your chunks in some kind of order um, and maybe write an introduction. And as I said earlier, uh, you know, an, an ending that has resources or tools or something and hand it over to an editor. And um, you just, that that's, you need another pair of eyes to mm-hmm. help you figure out if it makes any sense and, and kind of where the holes are, even, even within your chunks. I mean, that, what a really good editor does is says, no, wait a minute, you suggested something here, you're basically leaving a big hole for the reader. You need to answer this question. That's kind of what a really good editor does. So it doesn't really matter about the chunks being in different order. You do have to put it in some kind of order and hand it to a reader and to an editor, and then it has to be readable. I mean, you know how Seth Godin writes. He, do, he doesn't even use a table of contents, which, by the way, yeah. I love tables of contents. Mm. <laughs> um, he just, and I, I'm in the man, he's basically, he's just kind of a genius. He just sits down and writes, and somehow, it's like a symphony. It's, you hear enough echoes of themes that it kind of works, but most mm. of us can't do that. So, so uh, I think for the new writer, the whole idea of hiring an editor is a little daunting, and they also don't really understand what editing is. Can you... Just in your words, because since you are an editor, can you break down the different types of editors there are? Because there's, uh, and what I mean is I know there's copy editors and then there's content editors and then there's proofreaders. Um, how does that all fit together? That's a, a really good question. Um, all right. So I'll start from the top, if you will. Yes, that's great. Yeah. Um, so a content editor is also sometimes called a developmental editor. Mm-hmm. And if you were to get a book contract with a you know, a publishing house, you get assigned um, an editor and that editor is what's called a developmental or content editor. And they're the ones who helps you with the really big questions about your book as in, okay, Leonard, what's your book really about? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it, it's not just about a fairy princess, but it's about, you know, some deep moral quandary or something. You know, but the book is always about something that's not just what the story is. Um, and in what, and then the, the editor will say, and how could, what are different ways you could tell that story, et cetera, et cetera. They, they ask really big, hard probing questions. I just love doing it. I mean, it's just really fun to be that kind of editor. Uh, and it's really, really important because, because when you go down to the next level, which is a copy editor, um, and, and there is bleeding and I know you're bleeding ink, but there's, there is bleeding between them, by the way. You know, yeah, some sure. copy editors kind of do a little bit more content editing. A copy editor really should be much more down at the paragraph and sentence level, you know, cutting out fat and making your sentences sing and just making your writing a whole lot better. Um, that's what a copy editor does. And a really good copy editor makes you sound like yourself. Mm. It's almost like they're, um, they, they know how to imitate your style. Uh, it's just, it's, it's a real, it's an art, you know, in in addition to being a skill. And then a proofreader is what you do at the end. And they're incredibly important and it just sounds so unsexy and they're actually the least expensive kind of editor. And when I'm publishing a book and with an author, I have it proofread at least 
twice. Mm. Once when it's in manuscript form, and then again when it's been laid out in um, page design form where you see things differently. And interestingly, when all is said and done and you pick up a book in the bookstore or you get a Kindle, you download a Kindle book, what jumps out at you and makes you think the book is not professional and not credible is our typos. Yep. Little tiny mistakes mm -hmm. that it doesn't cost that much to get a proofreader. And by the way, the proofreader should not be your best friend yep. or your cousin or, yeah. the, you know, uh, or the guy sitting next to you on the bus. Uh, it's someone who just is really good at that kind of very close picky reading. So that, you know, I have to say, I, I, I do think that's kind of good news, right? You know, yeah. at the very end, if you get your book properly proofread, it's going to look more professional. It's going to have more weight and more value. It's going to have that immediate polish that people notice right off the bat. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And, it, and it, it also, when you're self-publishing or publishing with a small publisher, it, it, it includes, you know, how you lay out um, your copyright page, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, interesting. So, yeah. You know, what you put on that page and the language you use and so forth. So. Uh, so those are those are basically the kinds of editors. And how do you find them? There's lots of different places. And then you kind of have to try people and try working with them and mm -hmm. um, evaluate their work after they do it. And it, honestly, that's that's a little tricky. There's no yep. tried and true, you know, school for the perfect editor that you just call up and hire somebody. Yeah. It was definitely a struggle for me to find find my editor. So Voxy provides all three of those then uh, ser editing services, right? Yes, yeah. exactly. Excellent. I mean, that's what uh, if you if for someone who wants to publish a book with Voxy Media, that's what we offer. And it's um, again, I go, I call it curating because people mm. who are really busy but want it done right, um, mm -hmm. that's what Voxy Media does. Now, let's just be straight here: they have to pay Voxy Media yep. to do that. Yep. Um, that's that's just the way it works. Whereas if you get a contract with a, with a traditional publisher, they pay you something, some kind of advance. The advances used to be much, much, much bigger. Uh, so a lot of people see that as incredibly important. Well, you know, I don't want to put out any money up front for my book. I just want the publisher to pay me. Um, there's a couple of problems with that. One is it's really hard to get a book contract. So if you're serious about getting your book out there, you might just be able to, you might just use that as the excuse for never, never getting it done. And the second is it's, it's, I think it's, it's almost a misconception in thinking if you are going to launch a new product, which is what a book is, that's why I say author entrepreneur, you know, you're going to put money into building the product, marketing the product, uh, refining the product, you know, fixing errors, and it's going to cost money to get your product out into the world. And we're totally comfortable with that idea, particularly in software and websites and so forth. Mm -hmm. it, it costs money to get it out there. And so this idea that you should only get money to publish a book and not have to put money out is I just think, again, it's a little, it's a little old fashioned because a book is a product. Yeah. Would you say then if you're going to put money into it though, that you should have more, you have, that you have more skin in the game and that your return should be higher? Well, that's a good question. I mean, the return is going to depend on how many copies you sell. But actually, you know, I take that back because most of the, the writers I work with, because it is nonfiction business, if they get one or two big speaking gigs mm. that they wouldn't have gotten otherwise, or they start doing a workshop based on the content of the book, that's some really cool workshop in an area that they've been wanting to move into, bang, you know, that's paid for the book. Mm-hmm. 
So those are the kinds of authors I'm working with. It gets, again, it's a little bit different from fiction. Sure. Uh, it's, it's people that are using it for a business reason, but in a very creative, you know, deep way. It's someone who's, you know, been in business as a consultant for, you know, a decade or two and realize, decides they just want to go in a different direction. You know, how do you rebrand yourself? How do you reposition yourself? Well, one of the easiest ways is to publish a book on that topic and then start teaching speaking, et cetera, yeah. that topic. So that's generally what I tell, uh, that's how I work with my authors. That's what I tell them. Would you consider Voxy Media a, a hybrid publisher? And what are your feelings about hybrid publishing? Well, if you mean hybrid in, in that it's a combination of Voxy... Let's go ahead and define hybrid. Let's, let's, what's your definition of hybrid publishing? Because I don't, I, I don't know if there is a definition yet. I think it's yeah. still sort of forming. So go ahead. I, it, I basically, it, it means self-publishing that where you get a lot of curatorial help, basically. Mm -hmm. um, it's, so that's what it is. It's self-publishing, but you're getting the added uh, vision, wisdom, you know, creative expertise from, um, you know, from, an, uh, from a, a good, from an independent publisher. Mm -hmm. Uh, I guess that's why it's hybrid. And they, but we also, you know, they also talk about hybrid authors at this point who do both, who use traditional publishers mm. and also um, go out on their own and self-publish. That, that's mm -hmm. a really cool uh, area that, um, they, and some, a lot of those are fiction. You know what they might do if they're allowed to with their traditional publisher in between their big books, they might be able to get this in their contract. They might be able to self-publish shorter versions, particularly the thriller writers you know, shorter, like, like a chapter or something mm -hmm. um, to tease their readers into, you know, sticking with them until their next big book comes out. So hybrid, that's what hybrid authors are. They do both. Yeah. That's interesting. I wonder if that's, that has to be structured into the traditional contract. Um, Cause I know there's some, there should be some, or I think there's some limitations in place that don't allow them to publish anything on their own. So it's, it'd be interesting to see if uh, loosening that sort of uh, the ability to, to publish while being published through another traditional channel. Well, I mean, I am, I'm now I'm blanking on a good name of an author to give you in, in this sphere, but um, authors who are very, very successful have a lot more clout with their publisher and they sure. may just say, you know what guys, um, and I'm going to keep the rights to do some short Kindle books mm. you know, in between the big books I'm doing with you. And you know, another reason they do that is they can make more money right. by selling on Kindle themselves because you yeah. get, you know, 70% of the, of the price. Whereas if yeah. you go with a traditional publisher, um, by the time they take all of their cuts, mm -hmm. you, you're getting like 15%. Yeah. Yeah, that's two ninety nine or three ninety nine or four ninety nine. So uh, that you can see that those numbers would add up very very quickly. But yep. you got to have the you got to be a big dog and have the clout. Sure. To do that. So um, for most people, you're not doing this to make a ton of money. Mm -hmm. You're doing it because it's just been on your bucket list forever. You want to write and publish a book mm -hmm. um, for a number of different reasons. I. I believe that. And I also think that that's okay. You know, I'm okay with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So to sort of wrap things up, let's go towards a whole other topic. Like what's your current reading list look like? What are you, what are you currently into? Oh my goodness. Now you're really going to, oh, <laughs> now you're going to know way too much. Uh, I just sent out a newsletter to my list of readers uh, with my summer reading and it's, um, 
uh, now, of course, I'm going to forget the name of everything, but it's everything from Charlotte's Web by E.B. White, which I decided to reread. Yeah, he's amazing. Um, E.B. White, by the way, where I'm living now on the coast of Maine, he lived just a few miles from here. Wow. And um, it's a beautiful, beautiful spot, mid-coast Maine. And I, he's one of my idols because I love the way he writes. Yeah, so. his, his style is so eloquent, so nice. Anyways, go on. So I'm, uh, I just finished a couple of, um, I have very, very wide ranging taste. I just finished a couple of thrillers by uh, a main writer whose name I'm not going to be able to pronounce. I think it's Paul Dorian, D-O-I-R-O-N. He used to be editor of Downey's Magazine. I'm reading um, uh, the decluttering book by, what's her name? Mm. Oh, uh, yeah. I know which book you're talking it's about. sitting there by my bedside. I have the book of Anne Beatty's uh, State of Maine, her new stories. Um, Kate Atkinson's new book, the big one with the red cover. It's called Business Ted. That one I had, you know, I had in hardcover. What's the name of that one? Um, she wrote Life After Life, but this is her newer one. Don't worry, I'll find it and put it in the And uh, And the so I, I like, and I have a complete, absolute obsession with books on the craft of writing. So I'm constantly collecting them. I have a whole stack. What are your top three? Besides Bird by Bird. Okay. That like so that Anne was, Lamott, Bird by Bird. Yeah. Um... Oh, Leonard, that's not fair. The top, top three. Top five? <laughs> I know. I have a hard time doing that, too. I'd say Stephen King's book on mm-hmm. writing. On writing. That's one of my favorites. Um, Natalie Goldberg's Writing Down the Bones. Mm, I, I really, really one. like that one. Um, uh, I'll give you those three. Those Just are great. No, those, those are perfect. I think uh, there's two in there that I haven't even approached bird by bird and writing down the bones on writing was phenomenal well debbie i really appreciate you being on the show i i, I want to ask you one last question where can people find out more about you uh they can go to voxymedia.com v-o-x-i-e-m-e-d-i-a.com mm-hmm. um and they can also go to the gap year blogs that i've been writing with my husband for a couple of years and that's Gap year after 60.com. Uh, just the way it sounds. G A P Y E A R after 60 S I X D Y.com, which mm-hmm. is going to tell you how old I am, but that's okay. <laughs> and that's been a very, very creative endeavor that uh, I've been doing with, with my husband since we left DC. And I'm hoping to turn that into a book. Interesting. And, and we've actually spoken to a literary agent who might be interested, but that many, many, many questions about that, like how to do it. Um, mm-hmm. So I try at this point in my life to um, take my passion projects, if you will, very seriously, because I think that's what it's what keeps you going. And otherwise, it's just easy to get kind of bored with what you're doing. I get yes. bored very easily. So um, that's those two places, VoxyMedia.com and GapYearAfter60.com. What would be your number one piece of advice for someone over 60 who wants to pursue writing? Oh, my goodness. Hmm. Just do it. Just, just sit do down it. and just sit down and start writing a little bit every day. And it wouldn't hurt to work with a book coach who could give you mm-hmm. guidance, support, accountability, structure. Um, but don't think that just because you haven't been a writer up until then that you can't. Because yeah. I don't think it's it's not reserved for people that just call themselves writers. And that's really what the publishing revolution is all about. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of us are writers. Uh, you just have to do it. Yes. And not just talk about it. I mean, it, anyone can get a book 
out of their head, you know, from brain to book. It does take a lot of work. It can be painful. Yeah. So if you're over 60, um, just sit down and try it. And then yeah. but you got to try it for more than a week. Yeah. You try it probably for a couple months, maybe even for a year. Set aside five minutes a day to write down 20 words if you can and do that for at least a week and then just keep going from there. <laughs> you know, that's actually, I, I love that. And the other thing I would say is do something you've never done before outside mm. your comfort zone, like take a poetry writing class, which mm. I definitely did last summer and it was so cool. Oh, I bet. Uh, so, you know, once you're over 50 or over 60, it's like, hey, who cares? You know, if I don't know how to do something, I'll just, I'll just try it. You, you don't need to prove yourself quite so much. So true. Um, that's kind of neat. I have to say it's not, not everything about getting old is older, I should say, mm-hmm. is bad. And plus mm-hmm. I'm a baby boomer and we don't ever think of ourselves as old. <laughs> We're just in the next phase or something. Mm-hmm. Well, Debbie, thank you so much for appearing on Bleeding Ink. I think we've had, uh, we've discussed some amazing things. And um, God, I wish you the best of luck with Voxy Media and everything that you're doing. And, and I cannot wait for done to be done done. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you may be blogging, it's called blurbing my book. So we'll stay in touch on that, okay? <laughs> thank you so much for to. great conversation. You're welcome. Isn't Debbie just wonderful? God, really enjoyed interviewing her. Anyways, as promised, here's a short interview with Scott James about his typewriter poetry. Enjoy. Scott, that was awesome. All good. Thank you so much. Yeah, man. Yeah, that was great. So tell me more about this impromptu poetry and and how you go about doing it with your typewriter and all. Absolutely. Uh, It is... Instant typewriter poetry, and it happens in a couple different ways. Uh, there's what I would call the event uh, forum. So what I do is, well, maybe I'll start at the beginning. Uh, sure. So about a year ago, I decided that I wanted to write more poetry. Mm-hmm. And I've been writing poetry for 20 years. It was something I did in college. It was something I did long before that high school, junior high before that, but really started taking it seriously. And, uh, well, I really started doing it, making a lot of zines and whatnot as I grew. And then I decided last year, you know what, I want to take this more seriously. I want this to be something that I do, uh, in the world, part of who I am, part of what I do professionally as well. So, I said, all right, I'm going to issue myself a challenge. Uh, And part of this challenge, Mm -hmm. actually, part of the reason to issue this challenge came from reading Chris Gullibo's Happiness of Pursuit. Oh, okay. It's a book I recommend to anyone who's sort of looking to jumpstart their own own personal quest. Uh, From that... uh, I decided I'm going to give my goal some, some specific edges, uh, but give myself a lot of latitude about how to accomplish it. So what that meant in my case was I want to write more poetry. Saying I want to write more poetry isn't going to do much for that. So instead I came up with what I'd like to do is write a thousand poems in the year 2015. Hmm. Uh, and that sounded not easy but also not impossible. So it was kind of, where are you now? Uh, this morning (laughs) I, I posted poem number 543. Oh man. We're in 
50, what, what, 54.3%? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> awesome. So relatively on pace. Uh, and what I, I didn't, I had no idea how I was going to do it at the beginning. Uh, and the first thing I did was I went and set myself up at some food trucks here in Austin, hmm. Texas. And that went extremely less well than I wanted it to. <laughs> <laughs> So I set up and I thought, okay, I'm going to sit here for three hours. I should be able, you know, all these people are going to think this is the greatest idea ever. And uh, what happened is they all wondered, you know, why is this guy here with his little table and his little typewriter? And I only ended up writing about two or three poems. Uh, mm. Because what my process is, is to sort of be, be you know, at an event or in a place, uh, just like street busking. Um, and just be sort of doing my craft and available for folks to come up. And the way that I do mm -hmm. it is I say, uh, you know, if you give me a word, I'll give you a poem. That's, that's mm -hmm. my quick pitch. And at the food truck area, people didn't, weren't in the mood for a poem. They were in the mood to like get their food and eat, talk to their friends or whatever it was. Uh, so I tried a few more locations, uh, setting up street busking, and actually, the breakthrough event for me was at South by Southwest. Uh, oh, wow. I went to a happy hour uh, for my wife's company, actually. And mm -hmm. they were launching their company. And, and I sat down, and the tech crowd loved it. And yeah, I bet. You know, people, oh, my God, analog, this is amazing. Oh, we love this. <laughs> and I had a line. All of a sudden, I had a line. And uh -huh. I probably I did it for about eight hours straight. Wow. And I was, it was such a high for me. And I, I really fell in love with it. Yeah. And essentially people would just come up, first of all, just like kids, right? Yep. Just like me. Uh, yep. I'm sitting there with a typewriter and people want to touch it. They want to look at it. They want to yep. tell you about yep. their own typewriter. And I love that because it starts the interaction. Yep. Yeah. And then, well, go ahead. What's, what strikes me about that is I think there's a desperate need that, that especially in the youth coming up right now, um, or younger audience, not youth, but just uh, young adults and um, probably sub 30, mm -hmm. right? Sub 35, because I'm 35. So we'll say sub 35. Sure. There's a desperate need for this real world interaction is like tactile sensation because everything's been digitized. Right. So like when you come across in this analog, mm -hmm. you're like, oh my God, it's analog. Yeah. You know, um, it has a weight and, and three dimensions is insane. Yeah. Like, you know, that thing, I think that, that, um, it's funny. I think there's actually going to be like a comeback for, um, you know, these novel quote unquote <laughs> interactions that used to be what drove you know everything. Um, I hope so. so I'm sorry. That, that's great. Anyway, so go on. Well, I'm, I'm in love with it too. And, uh, you know, as someone who works on a laptop, you know, six, eight, 10 hours a day, it's, mm -hmm. it's fun to, to jump to a different machine. Totally. Basically, I, f I feel like I found my first rhythm at this event, mm. you know, and mm -hmm. as people came up, it was suddenly the pace was very fast. And although I had done this process that I'll explain real quick, I had never done it this sort of uh, many times in a row, this rapid fire. Mm -hmm. uh, and somebody mm -hmm. would come up, they'd say, they'd tell me maybe a two, three sentence story about something that was going on for them. And then they say, mm -hmm. I want a poem about love. I want a poem about, you know, 
roses or I want a poem about my, my girlfriend's name or my boyfriend's name or I want a poem about, you know, the color green. Mm-hmm. And, and then when they give me the word, I sort of, you know, clear my mind and just write on the spot instant poetry on the typewriter for them. Uh, one take, you know, and two minutes later, uh, pick my head back up and I read the poem to them. So I find that that's a, a really good part of this, uh, almost like a performance uh-huh. part of it. Right. Uh, read the poem for them. And then that's the end of the interaction. And then I give it to them yeah. and they can take it. But because it's part of this 1,000 poems uh, quest that I'm on, I take a picture of every poem. Uh, and then okay. I'm just yeah. logging them all. And I post you know, my favorites uh, on Instagram as well as uh get them out there through my newsletter yeah so people today can actually come onto your website go to your website and and request a poem right yeah you can do it through the website send me an email or you can do it on instagram uh and a lot of people do that already they'll post a picture uh and and tag me and then request and then i'll write the poem uh and then post it and i'll tag them back and i've actually had some really cool uh, poems come out of that process and mm-hmm. yeah every different way of approaching it yields something a little bit different uh, but the core sort of someone tells a story and wants to translate it through this kind of odd but intriguing typewriter as well as you know my brain uh, and then on the other side comes this poem that I view as like co-created between me and the typewriter and this other person to get mm. this final product that otherwise you know would never have existed and mm-hmm. that's the coolest thing for me is that people would never if someone didn't give me the word that they give me the poem would not exist you know right so where can people uh find you so on instagram i'm uh, at scott andrew james mm-hmm. and on the web i am scottandrewjames.com it's awesome well, I encourage everyone to go give you at least 700 words so you hit your goal in the next week. <laughs> that's, that's perfect. I'll be done by November. Yeah. That's perfect. Done. That's that you just, uh, Chris Giuba would be proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. You didn't get him to do a poem for you. Or are you sorry, reverse that. You need to do a poem for him. I did, I did one for him. He was kind oh. enough uh, to let me come to World Domination Summit, his event that he does in Portland every year. And they set oh. me up with a booth. So I was able to do live instant poetry uh, as part of their Portland experience afternoon. And I was hoping he would come around and shake hands and say hello. Uh, so I wrote him a poem in advance. He stopped by. So I actually, it, it's a cool nice. experience. I was able to give one to the guy who inspired the quest. Yeah, that's great. I love hearing about when people are inspired by someone and then that person, you know, actually comes into their life. Yeah. It's really great. Yeah. Well, thanks, Scott. I appreciate you being on and, uh, I hope you get a lot of really awesome uh, suggestions out of this. I hope so. <laughs> I appreciate you having me on. And uh, yeah, anybody who, who has a word that they want to poem for, send it my way. Sweet. For more episodes and giveaways, head over to www.bleedinginc.fm. That's www.bleedinginc.fm. If you want to help me out even more, 
You can go check out my book, Modern Rituals, The Wayward Three, on Amazon today. And also, I don't know if you guys know this, but I'm a software guy and I make tools for writers. Check out jslauthor.com. That's for J.S. Leonard, jslauthor.com. There you can sign up for my mailing list, get free tools, and all kinds of awesome stuff. Thanks for listening. Thank you.